This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the EDH Retcast, where we're all about commander, data, and dad jokes. I'm Joey Schultz and I'm joined by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he doesn't know whether to pronounce it Rue Caramel or Rue Caramel, it's Matt Morgan. George Clooney, Leonardo DiCaprio, Matthew McConaughey walk into a bar. They're going to make a movie together. George Clooney says, I'll direct. Leonardo DiCaprio says, I'll act. And Matthew McConaughey says, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> wow. That was... And the strike all, is over, so this can actually happen in real life. I... Matt, you came so strong out the gate with that one. That one, like, took me by surprise. And then the punchline was also so worth it. This is maybe <laughs> my favorite dad joke you've ever done. Not close. Wow. I, I mean, it's, it's proof that if you say something confidently enough, people will just believe you. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. Uh, up next, I'll introduce our next co-host. Um, he's got a fairy deck, and he's very, very happy about it. It's Dana Roach. Uh, I went to try to make a banana split for dessert tonight and realized I had no idea actually how to do it. Um, when I thought about it, I guess it's probably because when I was a little kid, my parents never sent me to Sunday school. <laughs> sure, okay. Uh, I oh matt uh <laughs> that doesn't work if you would have said you go to parochial school though and so words matter people it's also kind of tough to tough to tough to top that opening joke of matt's this week too honestly dana i didn't want to be rude but like that's what i was thinking i was just like dana no, yeah, the matthew was... mcconaughey is still what's ringing in my head right now you Absolutely. know <laughs> i mean i do think dana's joke was a little nuts though so it's, it's, it's pretty good yeah. I, you know, always, always got to find even more perfect. I just try to sprinkle a little bit of humor throughout the show. Yeah, just hey. a second joke. It really is the cherry on top. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. Before we dive too deep into that topic, let's get back on track for this topic. Dana, what are we talking about in this week's episode? We're talking about the anatomy of a commander game. Some kind of observations about the flow of EDH games and some lessons we can take away from that. Yeah, trying to zoom out and get a bird's eye view of what the flow of Commander games looks like. This should be very, very fun. I'm excited to dig into this, see what lessons we can take away. But we've got some shout outs to do before we get into it. First, I'd like to thank Chase for their help in editing the show. 
You can find them online at Mana Curves. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by liking, subscribing on YouTube, and doing all of the subscriptions on your local podcast apps. Or you can go to patreon.com slash edhretcast, where we have patron tiers of all sorts of levels. Whether you want to join the Discord community, you want to hang out there with us, you want to see all the episodes a day early, there's all that and more over at patreon.com slash edhretcast, including the weekly patron shoutout where we butcher patrons names every single week <laughs> so true. this week is no different because this week we're giving a most special shout out to olivier atron atrox entis <laughs> atrox from league of legends olivier um we're just getting a lot of league of legends names apparently in our patron dis- uh lists so that's cool um but also olivier uh, I I am sorry and or you're welcome if that's what you wanted us to do is put your name because I this one is above me. Uh, yeah, Olivia Atroxentis, I think is how, how we pronounce it. We're very bad at that. But you know what we're yeah. not bad at is appreciating you because we do. Yes, we, we definitely do appreciate the support. <laughs> Listen, that was dangerously close to a segue, Joey, and I don't think we're going to stand for it. <laughs> You know what? As long as you guys, like, I appreciate the stealing the Segway bit, but, like, we're pushing up on you guys taking the Segway at, like, the 15-minute mark in the episode. So, like, if I'm caught off guard by them, it's because I don't expect them until what I thought would be the halfway point. So, like, I'm, I'm on edge right now for, like, a five-minute Segway steal, okay? I'm just, like, I'm, I'm, like, worried. So we're going to move past that emotion. I'm just going to try and ease into this topic here. Dana, I would even argue that Joey's being a little challenged right now. No, da- no, Matt, we're not doing it. <laughs> I edit the show. That one's not going to fly. All right, let's All right. get into our All right, topic. fine. <laughs> let's get into our topic. We've named this one the anatomy of a commander game because we wanted to get some zoomed out observations about what EDH games seem to flow like. What are some of the patterns that we notice and what are the lessons that we can take away from those patterns that will make us improve in our deck building and in our, our play styles as well. Um, Dana, I guess I'll pass it off to you about like what does what is the first thing that wants to come up when we're talking about how EDH games seem to be constructed all around. I mean, basically, the, the first thing I think that, that would crop up is the pregame chat. Um, that it definitely encompasses the Rule Zero conversation, assuming you have it. But there's probably more to to it than just that, too. There's things like, like people revealing their commanders so you can you know see what's being played. Maybe some brief talk about expectations or introducing yourselves, that kind of stuff. It's um, so like that's, to me, basically the beginning of the game. And I think even if you're playing with friends, you still get a little bit of that where like people are revealing their commanders and there's some discussion about, oh, maybe I'm not going to play this against this into this commander that you're playing because it's a hard to counter and it's going to lead to a bad game, whatever. So mm-hmm. I think that that's always something that occurs in every situation and in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to kind of introduce the game is just what's happening before before commanders are even selected just how what what is the vibe what kind of feeling is everybody going for i know when we stream over at twitch.tv slash edh retcast a lot of the probably would say the first like 15 minutes or so just getting to know the person that we're playing with because sometimes it's somebody that we don't really know all that well so just figuring out what they like to do in games what are they looking for that night like are they feeling maybe a little feisty they're playing some high power decks or it's like you know what i just want to bang some craw worms against each other and so it's going to be just <laughs> as mild as possible and that's just such an important stage because it really sets the tone for the rest of the the night however many games you're going to get in from there 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. There are a lot of first impressions that can become lasting impressions in those early moments. And it is just about trying to make sure that we all got on the same page. Mm -hmm. uh, this can be a tougher thing for sure. I think that there are certainly moments where the rule zero conversation maybe goes wrong. Um, people asking, for example, oh, just what would you call your deck on a scale of one to 10, for example, doesn't always produce like everyone's a seven. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's like, oh, my deck is a seven. So like there are ways like that. There are also some times where people just genuinely may rep misrepresent what their deck is doing or represent it incorrectly or something. And Matt, I know a thing that uh, we'd like to do in those pregame discussions is actually talk about like estimated game length. Like when do you think this deck is meaningfully trying to end the game? Would it be on like turn seven? Would it be on like turn nine? Stuff like that. And we found that that tends to help out a whole lot when we're having those conversations. Yeah, sometimes it, people want to play those, those high power games, get them over quick and maybe get another game in. Sometimes it's, I just want to play one big long game and and just kind of see how the night develops. And so mm -hmm. getting a good idea for what's the timetable, how much time, and sometimes maybe sometimes people are in a crunch too. So uh, making sure that you kind of communicate all that stuff, it's just setting expectations is such a huge aspect of not just magic, but just life in general. And so just being able to communicate that helps the game flow so much. I also have ran into some red flags at this portion too. Um, mm -hmm. And... Some people just aren't maybe great at communicating for a variety of reasons. And just because someone maybe doesn't have a lot of information is a necessarily red flag. Mm -hmm. They still maybe don't know how to have that conversation. They're not good at it. They're not comfortable doing it with strangers, whatever. Um, so I'm more talking about when people seem actively hostile to that conversation. Sure. Because I've ran into that before, and it almost always is a portent of a bad game to come. When like someone doesn't want to tell you what commander they're playing because mm -hmm. they think they're giving away information and they need to keep that secret, or like things of that nature, especially. They don't want to tell you anything. They don't want to tell you their power level, because they're like, I'm not going to give you that information. I I've ran into that not often, but on occasion, and it's almost universally a harbinger of some form of problem to come. Yeah, I, I don't think I've seen that happen lately. And by lately, I would say probably in the past three or four years. But I do have very vi vivid and specific memories of that happening where everybody's kind of talking about like, okay, well, what are we doing? And one person's like, well, I have my commander picked out and they have it face down. And then they wait for everybody else to select their commander. Then they flip it up and, oh, it's Sliver Queen. Oh, cool. Thanks. <laughs> and then it proceeds to be a terrible game like you were talking about, Dana. And so... Yeah, I've I've definitely seen those situations where if somebody's not willing to engage with a pregame conversation, just kind of even get to know your name, that's probably not a good sign. Yeah, it is kind of where you suss out more than just what is the game expectation. Like, yeah. you're about to spend the next hour with folks. Right. You, you want that to be a good, like, oh, this is nice company that I'm keeping right here. And I hope that we all have a good time with each other. And it's nice to be able to figure out if other people's interests align with yours in that realm, not just in terms of what the game is. Because, like, the sanctity of the game is not so great that I need to stick around to see if the elf player wins if, like, someone's being just straight up disrespectful. Like, that is also a thing that definitely happens early on in those EDH games. Um, it just like setting everything up for sure. Uh, also, I think that there are times where it is just hard to know what your deck is doing uh, as well, like communicating what is my deck going to be able to do? Like I've been tracking all of my games this year and I've kind of noticed that mm -hmm. my average game length is about nine to 10 turns, but I didn't know that about myself until I started measuring all of that data. And you know what most people aren't doing is that. Like, why would you measure all of your data? That's something that a crazy person would do. Like you shouldn't do what I'm doing. This is absolutely wild. Right. So most people will <laughs> right. probably like estimate like, oh sure, it probably wins around turn 10, not knowing that maybe the deck is actually 
actually capable of being quite spicier than that. And so it's hard to get exactly what those numbers are mm -hmm. all aligned. So yeah, there is some malice out there. There's some misrepresentation that sometimes happens. And then there's also sometimes just like, I don't know, we'll find out as well. And that's all totally, mm -hmm. you know, that happens. And I think that people shouldn't be afraid to say, I don't know what this deck is going to do. I just built it. This is what I tried to do. <laughs> but people are either so intent on either giving all the information or giving none of the information. And it's okay to say, I don't know. I like when I first built my Tom Bombadil deck, for example, I knew I wanted it to be sagas. It was very obviously a saga deck, but I didn't know how to gauge what the ratios were and like what sagas are doing. And I came, you know, it took a game or two to find out, oh, I need to take out every single board wipe because it's so easy to recur them in this deck. And so mm. I didn't know that, but I also told the people in my first few games with the deck, hey, I don't really know how this is going to play out. I just know it's going to be a lot of sagas. And so just saying, I don't know, is such a, it should be an okay thing for folks to be able to say. Yeah, Matt, that's absolutely fair. I think we've all probably encountered the folks who say, oh, I swear my deck has never done this before. And it's a little bit like, I'm going to take that with a boulder of salt yeah. um, sometimes because like, I don't know, you started with a turn one Vampire Tutor, for instance. I'm not sure if I believe you. Like there, there's sometimes those moments come up, but yes, especially in the case of a new deck, being as forthcoming as possible, I find definitely leads to better games uh, that, are, that are going to come. So like, there's just a lot of stuff that we can do in that early stage to set up those expectations, like you were saying. And I think that's another really great tactic for it. So that seems to be how stuff sort of can feel when it begins, but that's not all that we've got to focus on this episode. Well, yeah, since we're talking about like how decks start out in play, I guess we can kind of move into talking about game flow and what you know, those first couple turns of a game are like. Mm. Um, so it, it, do you guys tend to brew in a way that makes your first several turns play the same way or, or, or is it different per deck for you? Hmm. Joe, like Joey, for example, like do your decks tend to play the same way in the first couple of turns, or is it just very much deck dependent? I so this is going to annoy Matt. I goldfish a lot. <laughs> um, I know that Matt doesn't like. Yeah, so do I. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, uh, Matt's kind of like eh, goldfishing, take it or leave it. Um, I do find that I will run through the deck enough times to make sure that my first. I would say like first turn through fourth turn tend to have like an amount of normality to them of just like, I want to make sure that in those developing early turns of, of commander game, I get some type of either a mana advantage source or some type of engine is going to be set up. Like, uh, you know, your classic Rhystic study being deployed at that time, Sylvan library, black market connections, some type of thing that like helps me carry on into the future turns. It makes me feel like what the, the, there's going to be some type of card, hopefully in my openings, that makes me feel like, ah, this will carry me onward. Um, so I do want to make sure that my decks have that amount of regularity, um, at least most of the time. Probably not all of the time. That'd be very, very hard to do. But uh, I would say that I do try to make sure that the early turns do look relatively similar just in setting up some stuff. Well, and it's not to say that I hate goldfishing. It's just I don't care enough to, to <laughs> yeah, yeah, goldfish. Yeah. <laughs> sure. uh, no, but, that's fair. But I also know I I also know my deck building preferences enough that I can tell just by just a virtue of a bunch of practice, really. Of I'm going to build this deck and I'm going to have a decent idea of how often I'm going to be able to do X Y Z in the deck and how often I'm going to be able to reliably do it on by a certain turn. And so I know that in my aggressive decks, I'm not going to be putting in a bunch of five and six drops because I know I want to reliably getting down there and, and the curve is going to be a little bit lower because I want to be a little more proactive. Whereas mm -hmm. if I'm missing casting a spell on turn one and two, th th that's okay on some of my slower decks because I've prepared for that. And, and so just my expectations for that also have been set a little bit differently. That's not saying I'm not going to do anything in the first few turns, 
but I'm not looking specifically to reliably have whatever going on in a way that's going to be tuned near to level that the both of you do, I know. Yeah, like I don't worry about it too awful much. I, ideally, I want to be able to make a play, mm-hmm. but I if I if I do three straight land drops, I'm not too worried about it. I'm definitely not someone who's like making sure I have, you know, 15, one or two drops in my deck so I can almost always have something to do in those first two turns. That's very much not how I brew. Um, beyond how I build, though, that this is the point of the game when I'm starting to like eyeball my opponents and try to figure out who is the the threat. Um, and the, the two things I'm already this early. Yeah. Really? All right. Um, the, the two the two things I'm looking for at this point are number one is does the person have a scary commander and how aggressively are they to the point where they can play that commander? Because mm. there's some commanders where like it feels like if they hit the field and they're allowed to play magic, you're going to lose. Sure. So I'm I'm watching for that number one and number two I'm kind of watching for is the person setting up their engine like you mentioned Joe is the person or are, are, is the person dropping cards that feel inconsequential because when I see that that I'm like oh that this deck is probably not to, as tuned as someone else's deck mm-hmm. so therefore I can probably worry less about this player than I can someone who I feel like every move they make is advancing their board state in a significant way. If their so basics are mismatched. Where, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like this is where I'm kind of doing those evaluations, right? I take to figure out who the person I need to worry for worry about is. Interesting. I, I I can sort of get on board with that. I in terms of like the tempo of it, like if I don't have a play by turn three, that's when I'm just like I that that's certainly a hand. I'm like, why did I keep that? Like I, I feel like we've certainly got sure. to the point in in Commander these days where it's just like if we're not doing anything, like if, if my first play is a smothering tithe or whatever, like yeah, that's powerful. But I'm also just like I think I am still behind in that case. Sure. Um, but I also think in this early stage, like at least up to turn four, like moving into the turn five or something is probably when, uh, like. I think that removal has a certain potency at this point in the game. Like, if I kept the hand because of that black market connections, and then it gets immediately destroyed because Matt is a butt and he wants to ruin my day, um, like, that could actually do probably a long-term great amount of damage uh, in a way that maybe it wouldn't feel as bad later on in the game. I feel like this is a particularly vulnerable point in a lot of things. If you have one of your early reasons that you kept the hand get removed, that can feel especially bad in this position, and that's just a, a thing that I wanted to linger on. Sure. Sure. This is definitely the point in the game where you have to watch the maybe the white or black player who feels like they're sandbagging a little bit <laughs> yeah. because there's been so many times I've I've been in a game where you're like, I'm surprised they didn't play that commander. And then you're like, I bet there's a wrath of God or something coming next turn and it drops like that. And then the person who like was super aggressive loses a bunch of stuff that definitely those early turns, something that I keep an eye out for is that person who you feel like might be sandbagging to to take out anyone who is plainly overly aggressive. That's totally dirt four and five, turns four and five, and also I guess sometimes six, but like those are the turns where I'm just like, yeah. is something gonna happen? This is the time where a board reset could definitely happen. So yeah. So so Dana, do you have a turn? So Joey, you're saying turn four through six or so where kind of the game starts to pivot a little bit. Mm. Dana, do you have any turns in mind where you hopefully you're you're starting to turn the corner into your mid game and really get the ball rolling. Do you have a turn in mind that you try to play for, or do you kind of see how it goes? Five or six, maybe. And I'm and I'm as long as I'm at twenty life, I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> I, I do not stress about getting chump damage or getting a hit for those. Like, because I have a handful of decks that have a miserable creature curve. I got a couple dragon decks and a sphinx deck, and mm-hmm. it's just all five and six drops for the most part, right? Like, you're just I, I'm not dropping bodies mm-hmm. until those turns. 
So I'm, I have, because of that, I've gotten very comfortable with like, sometimes I'm just setting things up until those turns and that's okay. Um, and I think a lot of that is psychological. You, if, if, if you are afraid to take damage, um, you don't need to be, I think. Yeah. Uh, so an interesting thing that also happens around this stage of the game, the turns, the five and, and, and six, I think this is also for me sort of this, this moment of like lobbing it up and spiking it down. Like this is where those things are being set up to happen, where I, for instance, might play Sir Conrad on one turn and then I might have morality shift or breach the multiverse on the very next turn. And like that is going to be a game changing sequence if I can pull it off. But who knows if I'm actually going to be able to pull it off. But like, I feel like this is the moment where we start seeing those like, oh, here's a game shifting combination of things, the big synergy that the deck is known for, like Elegith into an Ugin's Insight to draw nine cards. Like that is the big thing of the deck. Can you actually manage to, to stick it in play? But those things are spaced by a full turn, right? Because you don't have the mana resources to make it happen right away. And if you do manage to pull that type of synergy off, then you sort of become the arch enemy in that moment, which is why removal in this stage of the phase of the game can also be very important to make sure that they don't get to pull that <laughs> like wild synergy off at all. Uh, because if that Conrad gets to do the thing, like, uh-oh. So this is also, I think, uh, a time where people are, if there's going to be pinpoint removal or mass removal, uh, it, it tends to be saved, I think, for, for this stage a whole lot. Yeah, you'll also at this point get to, get to that, that thing where like someone will play a big threat and the threat will either get answered or it will get responded to by someone playing a bigger threat. <laughs> so, which really throws the dynamics of the game <clears throat> to the wind. See, Dana, I know that you hate it when I say this, but like, that's also my entire MO. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure, sure. So when this... Some, yeah, go ahead. No, and when somebody plays that that six drop, I play a seven drop, and Dana tilts off the face of the earth. <laughs> that's just how it works. So, so genuinely, I think this is the reason that we wanted to have this episode as a topic, right? Because... <laughs> Because Dana, you've mentioned this before. We're like, yeah, there's one big thing that we all need to pay attention to. And if you're doing another even bigger thing, it's just like, well, I'm going to have to use my removal spell on your bigger thing, which means that that thing is going to go, it's going to be able to run rampant and that's going to really mess with some stuff. And I got to say, man, that's something that Matt and I sometimes do to you intentionally because we know that you're not, sure. you're going to have to do a Sophie's <laughs> choice, right? Like, so we're like, all right, we'll force you to make a pick. Hopefully you don't pick me. <laughs> like, that's so like, you know, sometimes. Well, and the reason it throws me is because like my thought process when someone, when someone plays a threat, my thought process is to play a threat that's slightly less of a threat. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I want their threat to protect my threat. I don't want to protect their threat. See, I, I, I don't want anybody to outdo my threat. I, I no, for sure. There's no point in playing a threat if it's not the threat. I absolutely get that psychologically why you want to do that for sure. And, and I, I say that like 75% tongue in cheek, like being being silly. But also, yeah. I, I do think that there is a little bit of a genuine motivation when players do that too. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, Dana wants pretend hexproof on his creatures because like, why would you take a removal spell against those? Yeah. Uh, which I totally get. But I think this also brings up an interesting dynamic between the ways that the three of us play because we've seen those types of patterns, especially Dana, like with this phase of like, oh, you know, maybe someone it was if an early threat was emerging in this turn, you know, five through six or whatever. Uh, you tend to sandbag. Like I'm, I'm very like, I'm going to get like right out the gate my synergies here can you deal with me which is why i tend to be taken down a whole lot there's a common adage on our stream joey always dies first because 
I, I establish a very qu a swift early game threat. I'm very much like of the tortoise and the hare. I'm sort of the hare and it's easy to bajuka bug me and completely ruin my day. Mm -hmm. Whereas Matt is a lot more of the tortoise. He's like incrementally building up gradual amounts of value that will apply pressure inexorably for the entire rest of the game. And it can't be undone with any single strike. Whereas you wait for the first person's threats to be dealt with before you start to deploy something that's actually going to be like, ooh, I'm the arch enemy. And that also means that you usually like have counter spells or some type of interaction to protect when you finally move into that position. Mm -hmm. And those are three very different ways of approaching the game based off of the ways that we view game flow going. Well, and it's funny, too, because one of our moderators who also helps moderate the stream, we like to joke that when our friend Chris by the time you figure out what his deck is doing, it is already too late. Like he has yeah. a Chisei deck that <laughs> when you look at it, you're like, what the heck is this deck? Like this doesn't make any sense. And then once the deck finally, like at turn 12 gets moving, like, oh, oh, this, okay, that's what it's doing. And that's really, really cool. I think Dana does it within like a reasonable amount of time, but Chris <laughs> is just... If you figured it out, I'm going to win, and you never saw it coming. He does it in a mysterious amount of time. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Sometimes even to him. But yeah, but but none of those strategies really are right or wrong either, I, I think. No, no. It, it, it's whichever one works best also like depends on how you view the game, how you brew. And I think, you know, we've been playing so long that we, we've found the thing that works best based on our brew style, our, our meta, the commanders we play, all those kind of factors. Um, and that's, I think, I think a sign of someone who's been playing a long time. You just eventually, like, find that groove and find that rhythm. And I think newer players don't mm -hmm. maybe even see those patterns, let alone have figured out what their own one is yet. I mean, genuinely, one of the biggest level up moments that I've ever had playing EDH was when I first started to try out group hug because that's more of a control strategy and being able to like actually sort of like not just see, oh, how can I make my deck work at all, but actually look at like, oh, this person's establishing an army that I might be able to use a reins of power on and, and like being able to navigate like I see this person's going for that and that person's trying to stay defensive. What can I do? Who's going to beat like th those getting getting more of that, you know, bird's eye view like that was an unlocking experience for me. Uh, and I started to, you know, notice the things that the flow of the game a little bit better when I tried out a strategy that I was not comfortable with. And so those types of level up moments can be, you know, very, very helpful, I think, to see like where those things are actually going <laughs> to see where they're pointed and kind of deduce from that. What can I actually get away with in this moment right here on turn five? Can I actually get away with uh, playing something that's not going to affect the board state if I have a better sense of they're still developing or they're going to establish an army? Am I on their radar, et cetera? Well, and sometimes too, it's it's a surprise what you can get away with, like how we keep getting the segue. How we challenge the stats? Yeah. Like how we yeah. challenge the stats maybe, you, Matt? Because I saw you, what you were doing there. No, counterspell on that. <laughs> no, I said what we can get away with, like challenging the stats and the getting the segue. And then you jumped over and, oh, okay, it's happening now. It's called an interrupt, Matt. <laughs> it's yeah, an old card type. <laughs> that still means that I put it on the stack first in order for you to interrupt it. So nice try. All right. <laughs> you let me get away with it. You even, you set me up so well. You're getting very, very good at this, Joey, where you say something that's, <laughs> it's just so easy to to transition into a, a four. He's getting good at segueing to the segue. I've, we haven't even talked about what happens after turn seven yet, but sure, <laughs> we'll leave some listeners in suspense. Actually, I do kind of like leaving listeners in suspense. Yeah, no, Matt, you're actually right. Let's challenge the stats right now. We'll be back after this break. <laughs> Don't try to butter me up by saying that was a good segue. <laughs> if you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. 
So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hey, I'm Nolan Sykes, a host of Past Gas, the number one automotive podcast in the world. Every week, my co-hosts, James Pumphrey, Joe Weber, and I bring you some of our favorite stories from the hollowed halls of car history. From the amazing to the weird to the utterly unforgettable moments, we cover it all. Join us as we take a look at the wild stories and larger-than-life characters behind legendary cars and car makers. So if you love cars or just like a good story, check out Past Gas by Donut Media, the number one automotive podcast in the world. My challenge this week is brought to us by a listener, and and I apologize for this, uh, talking about names that we're going to butcher here. Um, Leif Arn Vidsen. Probably got that wrong, but uh, I apologize, Mr. Vidsen, I believe. (laughs) Um, And and the challenge this week is for Necrologia. And I challenged this about a year ago, specifically in Sheila Dread decks. This is kind of more of a general challenge. Um, For those who don't recall, Necrologia is an instant for five mana, three black, black. You can only cast it during your end step, and as an additional cost to cast Necrology, you pay X life and draw X cards. Um, so, you know, usually this is something you would do at Sorcery Speed and Black, you know, Ambition's cost and Ancient Craving cost, four mana versus five to draw three cards. You know, this one for, for the um, five mana you're spending, you could, you know, draw as many cards as you want to spend life on. It's limited to your end step, but I think Necrology is a really solid card, and, and the point being made here is it's only showing up on about 8,500 decks at EDH Rec, and it's way underplayed in any reanimate deck hmm. because you can draw cards beyond what your ability to hold and then have the ability to discard down to hand size and reanimate as you see fit. If you're in a life gain deck like something like Shieldred, it's even better, but it's a very powerful card, and, and I agree it should see more play. I think this is a victim of just not having gotten a reprint for a long time, so a lot of folks probably don't even know it exists, but... Uh, I, about a year ago, I said it should be played more in Shield Dread decks, and I think it just should be played more in general. I agree with that. So thank you very much, Leif Arn Vidsen, for supporting the show and for that suggestion. Cool, cool. I'll move to my challenge next. And this is a card that, like, I think we've said we don't like in the past, but it's not one we've ever officially challenged. And so I'd like to put a Road of Return on trial here. I think it is guilty of being a bad card. This is the two uh, green mana sorcery that uh, has an entwined cost for an additional two, so it can be a four mana sorcery. You choose one or both if you entwined it, return target permanent from your graveyard to your hand, or put your commander into your hand from the command zone. This is showing up in about 8,000 plus decks, but specifically about 28% of Kadena slinking sorcerer decks. The morph deck is where this card first saw print. So this is just a classic precon effect. I don't think this card is very good. The only returning permanence is a little bit restrictive compared to the Balaged recovery stuff that we know green can do these days. And getting your commander from the command zone back to your hand that's also like you're, you're paying extra mana to save on command tax later kadena does not need that there are some decks that care about this about having the commander into the hand if you're doing my oceans or phage or, or things like that phage isn't even in the right colors though so like just we're talking about kadena here <laughs> kadena doesn't need this this is classic precon effect let's get it out of that 28 percent of kadena decks i don't think she needs it she's got morphs to play 
Well, and I'll wrap us up then this week with another overplayed that kind of doesn't really make any sense. Maybe I'm missing something. Who knows? Um, but Agatha of the Vile Cauldron deck is the new gruel, as in red-green color legendary creature. The seems to be focusing kind of a little bit on the ability that Agatha has of activated abilities of creatures you control cost X less to activate where X is Agatha of the Vile Cauldron's power. This effect can't reduce the mana in that cost to less than one mana. Then you can also pay four generic and red-green to have other creatures you control get plus one, plus one, and gain trample and haste until end of turn. So there's a lot going on. Looking at the typical deck that we're getting in on EDA Trek, it seems kind of scattered. There's a little bit of plus one, plus one counters. There's a little bit of activated abilities. And some of them I just, I don't get. So there are cards that are very, very cool. All the invokers that are getting played in this deck, those are very cool. But then there's cards like Drillworks Mole that I just, <laughs> I see and I scratch my head. And I understand the appeal of wanting a one drop that kind of comes down early and sits around. But also this card doesn't do a lot and it doesn't do it very often. <laughs> so Drillworks Mole is one mana for a artifact creature mole. It is a one, one that says two mana and tap it to put a plus one, plus one counter on Drill Drillworks Mole and a plus one, plus one counter on up to one target commander creature you control. So you can only activate this once per turn, which already compared to a lot of other things that you can be doing in this deck, it's already pretty slow. It's only one plus one plus one counter on Agatha, one on the mole. But also, you can only reduce it in total by one mana because, as Agatha's ability says, you can only you cannot reduce it to less than or to only down to one mana. So, at best, you're still gonna have to pay one mana, which is only reducing the cost by one. It, that that doesn't seem that great. There's a lot kind of just like not going on here. I don't really get the synergy, listeners. If I'm missing a synergy here please let us know in the comments because if this is a combo deck or something, I can't really grok what this deck is trying to do. But I definitely know that Drill Works Small is not something it wants to be doing. And so by virtue of that, 45% of Agatha decks are playing Drill Works Small. I think that is too high. I really don't get it. Maybe, like I said, I think I'm missing something. But at first glance, Drill Works Small is not the card you want to be playing in Agatha decks at all. 45% is actually, that is very high in my opinion too. I, I think this is a really good challenge, Matt. Like I say this as a man who has a commander commander deck in which I can only play cards that say the word commander on them. I would not play this card <laughs> in that deck uh, because like, even though there aren't a whole lot of options for cards that say the word commander on them, this would still not fit the bill, especially if the reduction that you're getting off of that Agatha ability is only one mana. Like you have to play this and then it still takes an extra turn for it to be able to tap. Yeah, this is not the kind of thing I would want to spend a card slot on either. So yeah, I totally agree with your challenge. Okay, guys, so let's get back to talking about our bird's eye view of Commander games. And we were kind of just there in the middle. Uh, I don't think we quite got to what the last stages of Commander games look like. And I, I don't know about y'all, but I personally kind of lump everything in the seven plus turn category to like just this big this big feeling of like this is where the turns are super duper swingy <laughs> like th these are the yes. turns where you can lob it up and spike it down in the same turn so this is where we produce the absolutely most wild board state effects uh you know the turns go from being you know a quick like oh path of ancestry pass to being like no i'm gonna do this and this and this and this and you'll actually have like you know upwards of, of potentially three spells to cast each turn and Especially a consequence of this, I think, is that like whoever the threat is can wildly shift multiple times per round as well as everyone starts being able to do a bunch of zany stuff. Well, for me at least, this is the turn, or these are this is around the phase of the game where I I definitely want to be kind of getting into the point where if I really needed to, I could make a, a heavy impact on the game 
my board is set up so I can play that and I'm going to get immediate benefit. And then the game is going to start trying to focus around what I'm going to be doing because typically I'm not playing a bunch of off-board stuff. I'm playing it out. I'm then, you know, advancing and kind of, I'm fully aware that I'm becoming the villain in these moments. (laughs) Uh, Sure. And so... That's the time when, in most of my decks, I would say, that's when I I try to at least take reins of what is happening in the game. Because otherwise, if I'm letting Dana, for example, or Max or whoever, if I let them keep being the ones to kind of dictate the pace of the game, that's when I know my typical decks, they're not able to do that anymore. So I have to start taking taking kind of the, 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 what you call it, the pressure gauge and being that, that applies that to the game. The, the shifting threat thing is interesting because this is where uh, one thing I've observed that changes from maybe playgroup to playgroup or meta to meta um, is whether the pod decides to focus on taking out the the threat or the leader or focus on taking out the the weak link. Oh. Um, and I do think that that is something that tends to be a trend in some environments and some metas I've played in, people do tend to go after the weak link and some metas people tend to go after the, the person who's a threat. When you're playing at like a you know magic event, it's kind of a crapshoot. But I do find that kind of fascinating. And I've spent a lot of time kind of thinking about that and trying to analyze that. And one conclusion I've come to is it seems to me that meta environments tend to be ones where they look to take out the weak link first because that's one less person that can combo out and win hmm. out of nowhere versus environments where that isn't the case where people tend to not be playing combo then the person who has the obvious lead tends to be the person that's the obvious threat um, so you want to keep them from having that advanced board state and tend to knock them back down a peg versus like eliminating the person who probably isn't going to win out of nowhere because people really aren't playing like fast combo wins. Hmm. Um, have you guys noticed that difference in, in, in the approaches at all? Or, or is that something that it, it is just random as far as you can tell? I, I think my experience definitely differs from yours here, Dana. I don't tend to come across the uh, the getting rid of uh, a person uh, when they've like fallen behind, for, for instance, um, the, the weak link, uh, as you said. If someone is in that position, I totally understand how it can be advantageous to make sure, no, you do not have the chance to sneak up on us because we all left you alone for a little while, mm-hmm. which is totally a pattern that can absolutely happen in Commander games. Um, and I think that probably is a pattern that happens more often in the games that I play because at least with most of the groups that I play with or even in the the situations if I'm at like conventions or something like that, socially I feel like that tends to be avoided in the the circles where I'm hanging out, I think. It, for me, the dynamic much more feels like tracking the arch enemy. <laughs> like yeah, if someone has sure. gotten into a great big board position and everyone's trying to undo them and then it maybe shifts to a new person. I, I think especially I notice a tension that kind of emerges if one person has been the arch enemy for more than one full round past this like point, you know, <laughs> past this like into this late stage of the game. Mm-hmm. That's when everyone's just like, we're hunkering down. We really got to deal <laughs> with this thing. Uh, and, and that's when the arch enemy really knows like I got to start putting this game away or else because everyone's got for me after that full round has, has sort of passed but yeah for me it doesn't seem to be tracking the wink link so much it is so much as it is just like noticing who's the arch enemy and how are they going to be dealt with and and that has a lot of consequences as a result well i think you only at least in my perspective the only time you want to be tracking the weak link and trying to take them out is if you are the arch enemy sure if you are kind <laughs> sure, of trying yeah. to, to vie for, if you're in that middle pack yeah who it doesn't really matter who's trailing because you know who you're chasing you know, if you're in a foot race, you're not racing the person behind you, you're racing the person in front of you. 
And so if you are in front, like, yes, you want to make sure you're staying in front and don't give anybody those openings. But if you're trying to chase somebody, Joey, if, if you're the arch enemy, I'm looking out for Dana and Dana might not look scary right now. I'm not going to take him out though, because I know that you're the one that is scary right now. So unless you are the arch enemy, taking out the weak link to me seems like a strategic misplay in a majority of games. Well, and I do think one thing is worth noting too, is just because you perceive one person as a weak, as the weakest person at the table and perceive someone else as the arch enemy doesn't necessarily make that so. Mm-hmm. Or, or even if it makes it so for you, it doesn't make it so for somebody else. There's, yeah. there's so many variables there that you don't know what someone else has in their hand, what their deck is trying to do necessarily. Um, so yeah, that's that's one thing too. Like just because you think someone is like making a mistake and how they're handling that doesn't mean they are. Yeah, and again, this is the point where, like, the point of the game where things, like, start getting yeah. wildly swingy. Like, this is the point yes. where fogs are, like, way good because it's, like, it's casting a counterspell on someone's late-game lethal setup. Like, this is where those moments really get good because you are defending potentially game-ending positions on all sides. Like, this game is designed very additively. Like, we are putting more pressure into the cauldron than it can actually take. Like, there's not an, an amount of removal that can stop everyone from doing something unless you're playing like four board wipes or something like that which isn't right like but like the only type of removal that will actually stop everyone from potentially being able to end the game here is a level of removal that would produce a two-hour game that none of us really want to play right so it, i just think it's uh this is a very dramatic amount so like I, I totally can see a lot of those folks who maybe fall behind they can still sneak up with something really good but also you never know when someone's going to drop a ruinous ultimatum and then that's cleared the way for them to just smack dab for lethal right so tracking who the threat is is a, a complicated thing we've done whole episodes about it before sometimes the threat is different for each person mm-hmm. but uh, I, I just tend to to notice that like a lot of the focus goes to who's most obviously in the lead whether it's their board or the number of the cards that they've got in hand and that tends to shift around uh, a lot in in this stage uh, and, and that's just very very interesting to me to see what the results are of that so here's a question for the both of you that I'm actually kind of curious because I think I'm going to get very, very different answers too. is, mm. is there a point in the game or is it before this point that we're talking about now where you can take a turn off to play a card that maybe doesn't effectively do anything this turn, but is instead going to have a bigger impact in a turn or two? Mm. Uh, I know we've talked about cards all the time that, well, this doesn't really do anything and you kind of have to take a turn off to play it, cards like Zendikar Resurgent, Vidalkan Ori. Dana, I know you're very torn on that card. <laughs> Are there ever good opportunities to play cards like this or to just to take a turn off to play something that doesn't immediately affect the board state? I definitely don't want to be doing it turn six or seven and, and onward. I don't mind doing it early. Matter of fact, I would argue that oftentimes if you fill your deck with cards so you never have to worry about missing a play on your first one or two or three turns, mm. you're going to have cards in your deck that aren't impactful. You have too many cards in your deck that aren't impactful on turns seven, eight, and nine. Um, so I would much rather have a deck that occasionally just doesn't do anything but but draw land go on the first couple turns and has nothing but impactful cards turn five and beyond then I would hit those early turns and have those things in hand or draw them on turn seven. Um, so it's, it's a tough, it's a balance. Like I think you don't want to be taking those turns off later, but it's okay to do it early for sure. 
It, it, it definitely can depend on what the effect is as well. Yeah. I think that there are plenty of times where you could, you know, sandbag, I'll play that orrery, for instance, um, you know, a little bit later on those turns so that I still have mana up to maybe make some uses of it immediately when I play it. Um, and there are also some cards that don't technically affect the board state, but like you can almost potentially get away with it depending on when you deploy them. Like I've got Caged Sun in some of my uh, monocolor decks and like if I can manage to ramp out swiftly enough to play it on like turn four or five, that's when I'm feeling like, yeah, yeah, that's, oh, this, this is what's up. But also sometimes I will like potentially be able to play that on a later turn and I'll get a mana boost enough from what I've already got going on that I'm like, I can still make some decent use of this. But I will also sometimes actually play it on the turn six. If I think, if I, th then when I'm doing the Dana thing, where I think that someone else is doing something that's a little bit more distracting, I think my Cage Sun might actually be able to make it off scot-free this time. Yeah. Uh, so I think it kind of comes down to reading the room, sensing what else is going on. Will this actually be the thing that distracts everyone else? And, and maybe that's part of uh, where I become more of the opportunist thing uh, that, that Dana is doing, waiting for the right moment i think that there are those moments but i i fully understand the premise of your question matt that it is infrequent because there are some effects where i'm like yeah i think i can afford to try this but like i, I think you were talking about grave betrayal a, a couple episodes ago right and it's mm -hmm. just like when is the time i can play this successfully it, it's i feel like i'm just saying i'm open to attack if i take seven mana to do nothing to the board and i totally feel that so yeah i was literally just gonna mention grave betrayal yeah <laughs> that's that's the standard bearer for this that's a great card i the words on grave betrayal <laughs> are amazing i love yeah. everything about those words except for that that five in the black black mana symbol up in that <laughs> upper right corner yeah yeah dana sometimes it's just the that cost it's so prohibitive yeah that even if, no matter how good the effect is you truly can't afford to take a turn off and <laughs> it's got to be something that really pulls me in a direction i i don't mind doing it for something like zendikar resurgent because that's going to set me up for the rest of the game whereas grave betrayal the upside is all there so it, it it's, I know it's kind of a cop-out to say it depends, but it truly does. It depends on what deck I'm playing it in. If I have a lot of cards that set up early game so that I propel out and accelerate the the turn off, if you will. Mm. But man, it's, it's, it's really hard to say. Typically, I don't mind it more than the average player, but I also make sure that the, the turn off that I'm taking is actually going to be worth it in the next few turns. An interesting thing that I think also kind of emerges around uh, around this stage, but also like maybe in those like more of the mid range uh, turns that you were calling them, Matt, is like when the arch enemy position shifts. Like this is a big picture lesson for me about like noticing as one person's pulling into lead and maybe they're being dealt with where we place our removal as a result of that is one of the bigger lessons for me, I think. Because when the arch enemy position does shift away, if someone does get dealt with, if their board gets decimated, literally by the card decimate, for instance, or if removal, a well-timed removal effect does take out their commander so that it doesn't have the cool synergy that they were just about to pull off, that person has been felled in a certain way. We've toppled the giant or whatever. And then I think I sometimes notice in games that like people still want to settle the score a little bit because like mm -hmm. that person was temporarily the arch enemy and they hit me for 10 damage and dang it, I want to get them back too. So you might still like direct even one more thing to really make sure that they're staying down. A lesson that I've kind of had to unlearn is to like, I don't want to be petty here because like once that person has actually been answered, I need to make sure that I'm holding whatever removal spell I've got for the new person that's about to become the problem. Mm -hmm. And the new person who's about to become the problem might be me, at which point I'll need to defend <laughs> that point as well. But as soon as an arch enemy actually has been dealt with, like there are certainly people who like, it looks like they've been dealt with and then it, you know, they'll come back in full force the very next turn. 
but I, I notice that sometimes a person, you know, gets taken off of the throne a little bit and then maybe something else still comes their way. And, and that's the thing that I need to make sure that I, I actually hold on to and reserve for whoever is about to assume the title of the throne next. You talked about holding a grudge um, or, or, or just misevaluating or forgetting that, the, you know, our enemy has changed. That's kind of a thorny issue, an easy mistake to make. Are there any other things like that that you guys see crop up? That, and I'm asking this because there's one that pops up for me. Hmm. Take backs, I think, especially at this point in the game, are much more relevant than they are at other points. How do you guys, how do you handle that, Matt, when someone wants to roll back something they've done? Uh, if it's still on the stack and nobody's responded to it yet, that's fine. If you're kind of uh, the tag backsies are, ooh, that's <laughs> such a, it's such a tricky thing because sometimes it can be something really obvious that you just like you miss and it's like, Oh, Oh crap. Like I don't want to do that instead. But if, if it's like a, almost like a five second rule, it's not food falling on the ground. It's <laughs> sure. I cast the spell Oh no! Actually, nope, nope. Never mind. I, I can't do that. Whatever. Um, it, it's it's got to be something like you can't. If you're expecting somebody to like, I'm going to cast this thing. Somebody's going to respond to it, and then something else. That's that's beyond take backsies. Absolutely. Um, I, I've seen yeah. that happen a couple times, and every time it's felt dirty. But yeah, so I, I know it's kind of a wax and wane. But if you're changing your mind immediately and like, okay, I'm going to cast this and. I think actually, no, no, I'm still going to cast it, but I'm going to target this thing instead. That's one thing. But then like, if somebody responds to your spell after you've declared the targets, that's when it locks in. It's too late. It's on the stack. People are responding now. Well, so specifically, like an example there, like, I mean, because you do have to declare targets as, as part, yeah, part of yeah. spells, I, but I think you probably need more like, like a rec sage, for instance, because yeah, like that yeah. goes from it's on the stack and you don't know what you're targeting until it actually hits the battlefield. Right. Like, then you're declaring the target. And it's just like, all right, well, it's a little bit late for counterspell, my guy, but there are people who do that. And like, that is definitely a feel bad take back yes. or a person who's just like, oh, well, now that I know that you're attacking me, I would have done this. And it's just like. But you didn't do that. And right. so like those are the types of take back moments that do feel a little bit like, ah, that's you have new information now. And I think this is literally against the rules. And what's worse is that you've put me into an awkward position where I kind of have to be a, a bit of a butt now. I have to like sort of stand up for like, well, no, like you had your chance. <laughs> like yeah. this puts me into an awkward social situation. But I am going to stand up for myself in those moments because, yeah, Matt, you're absolutely right. Those moments do suck. You didn't counter my Rex age. Y- I'm not going to give you that information uh, like for free. Like you can't counter it ex post facto the, the splash damage i guess is how i look at it like the, the does it take what does it take back effect mm. um and it, it's so fluid like if somebody you know you mentioned rex age someone drops a rex age and they go to target you know some player's soul ring and they missed that i had dropped this artifact the previous turn and like a third player is like yeah but dana has that it has a caged son in play that he played <laughs> like oh shoot i forgot he played that like i'm not going to argue no you you named that soul ring you gotta hit the soul ring. I'm not gonna like because they they missed it. It was an easy like there there's no splash damage from that necessarily. It doesn't change the flow of the game. Yeah. Whereas like you said, if there's if somebody's doing something that impacts things that have already happened, that's a whole different deal. Yeah. As long as time doesn't need to be rewound. Yeah. To get to that, I I totally agree. Yeah. Sometimes you just you miss some things. You know, things are always going on. Especially like if you're at a Magic Con, and you're playing with your friends, and somebody says hi as you're walking by. Oh, I missed that. Let me. Can I target that instead? Yeah. It. If it's genuine, absolutely understand. Yeah. And just. Oh. Yep. Yeah. You missed that. Whatever. Uh, but if it's blow something up. Okay. Cool. We're gonna move on. No. Absolutely not. 
Well, speaking of rewinds, another thing that we definitely have to acknowledge that is a, a definitely a, a thing that happens in the anatomy of commander games are the rules errors. Sure. Like, we just have to contend with absolutely. Yeah. This is the most complicated way to play magic. We all make mistakes. And if you can catch it and rewind to something sensible that everyone agrees with, absolutely cool. But sometimes you don't realize that you've been playing a card wrong for five turns and that honks. But like, yeah. oops. And, and you do what you can. But like rules errors are also a thing that, you know, it's a little bit thorny, but it's most likely going to happen in a whole lot of games because uh, not Dang, there's a lot of text on these cards, and this is all complicated. <laughs> or missing triggers too. That's I, I don't think you'll ever find a worse player over a six study than Matthew Morgan. Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I just, I, I, I know I'm playing it. I know it's on the battlefield. I just forget what it does. Apparently, <laughs> awesome. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that those are, are things to acknowledge. Those are, are thorny things that can certainly come up. Another funny thing that I think also comes up is actually like early on in probably the developing stages is like that comical point of one damage that someone deals to you that you then you know, hold a grudge about for the entire rest of the game. Um, yeah, like those are, I don't know. That, that's a trend of Matt attacks me with a Sakura Tribe Elder and I remember it forever. Like that's, I don't know, that's another thing that I tend to know. You've, you've, done, you've done it though. You've done that. Oh, absolutely. I do it. Yeah, uh, I do it plenty. But there's also sometimes the only time that I attack. Um, but something that's more important that sometimes comes up in games too is like the early fast mana right out the gate. That is the kind of thing that I think can transform all of the stages that we were talking about early because it allows an arch enemy to grab control of the game much, much earlier, like several turns earlier. Mm -hmm. And that can also be very, very different on the impact of everything else that follows as a result of that. And I don't know how you guys feel about that. Do you think it makes a big impact or no? I mean, so it depends. I, so if they propel themselves into this very dominant board state early on, where that kind of where it puts unhealthy pressure onto the game, that's when I I kind of remember that game a little bit. But mm. also, everybody's had games where they have this this miracle opening hand of land, soul ring, arcane segment. Everybody's had that from time to time. Yeah. So if if it's something like that, I don't mind. They're like, okay, they had a strong start but not something that we're going to actually have to like dig ourselves out of. How about you, Dana? Well, and especially like the, the example you mentioned, Matt, when someone like, you know, they're playing a equipment deck. So they happen to have a Mox Opal in the deck because it makes sense thematically. And, oh, they open and they happen to have the soul ring into arcane signet and they can play that Mox Opal for free and tap the arcane signet and the <laughs> Mox Opal to play a, you know, talisman of some sort. Like that's insane. And they're also down to two cards in hand. Like, they're, they're like their deck wasn't designed to open with that kind of hand necessarily. Mm -hmm. And while it looks explosive and it's impactful, they're probably going to play, take several turns to actually do anything with that mana. And in which case they've brought a bunch of threat in themselves anyway. I think if you're not playing at a super high level, that tends to even itself out in my experience. And that's kind of another lesson for us to like remind ourselves of here, right? Like there are sometimes, sometimes we are really eager to just have an impact in the game at all and to do the cool, exciting thing. Cause like, oh, I haven't got to do this. Like sometimes we're just like, oh, we're excited. Sure. And we rush into that really big position without being able to spike it down. We'll lob ourselves up and then we're actually out of gas. But all that, like a, a lot of threat evaluation is just what's right in front of us. Like what is on your board? Mm -hmm. And I, I tend to notice, I, I think that like a lot of folks will see what's on the board as the biggest indicator of threat rather than like, for example, 
number of cards drawn, which to me is the thing that I'm most worried about. Like, who's got the most proficient engine? <laughs> that's like the the, the, the studies or, or the market connections or anything that's like, oh, you've you've actually drawn quite a number of cards over the course of the last couple turns, haven't you? And that is a thing that I want to keep my eye out for, especially because as we get into the later games, like, ooh, that's going to be a problem. And so a, a lesson for us is just to, you know, th those times can certainly be exciting. But if you don't have the stuff to back it up, be careful. <laughs> like if you're not going to be able to spike it down, yeah, watch out. And maybe, maybe sandbagging can be very strategically beneficial for you, so that you can put yourself into a position in those later turns to both lob it up and spike it down in the same turn once you have enough resources to do so. Well, speaking of spiking it down, I guess that kind of brings to the maybe the last step here, which is <laughs> winning the game and or losing the game. Mm. Um, and and for me, the, the 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 big relevant point here is to just kind of do that graciously. Yeah. Or, or at least as graciously as you can. Because everyone's had a game where, like, you're annoyed you lost because this happened, or you're just in a bad mood in general, or your blood sugar's low, or whatever. <laughs> just try to make an, the, the best attempt possible to, like, have that victory or that loss um, be as graceful as you can make it. I, I really like a point that Josh Lee Kwai, or sorry, Zosh Lee Kwai came out with uh, <laughs> years and years ago, but it, it's really been something that I've, I took to heart and I, I try, I don't always succeed, but I try to keep in mind is if you win the game, instead of talking about, oh man, I can't believe I got to do this, whatever. Like if it was something super splashy and everybody's talking about it, that's one thing. But if the, if you win a game, immediately compliment something somebody else did. I hmm. absolutely love the social aspect of just trying to do that. Oh yeah, like I, I got it, cool. But like, I really like this thing that Joey did in that game. It was actually like super cool. I have never seen that synergy or, or whatever it looks like. That's one thing I I absolutely love about just like that attitude that that Josh originally suggested. And so yes, handling a win graciously is something that I think will go further than anything else as far as getting you invited back to a pod with those three other players. It's it's an investment in future games. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that too. I think an element about the end of a game that I also keep in mind a whole lot, like we want novelty, we want memorable games, right? Like mm -hmm. a, a word that we've used to describe <laughs> the the games on this channel before is like narrative. Like we do see these as stories, like, mm -hmm. and in terms of the ways that games end, we want the same things that good stories have. We as audiences crave endings that are both surprising and inevitable. We don't like endings that we can see coming already and that take forever, which is why we don't care for control decks in this format, because we know how they're going to end, and it feels like it takes a long time to actually get there. Sure. But we also don't like twist endings that just come out of nowhere, because it feels like they're not an earned ending that was justified by that plot. And that is often the perception of combo wins, because if those combos lob and spike down their strategy all at once, it can sort of feel like that had nothing to do with the rest of the story of the game up until that point. Yeah. So we want to ride that middle line between those two things. We want the ending that feels like, yes, perfect. That is inevitably exactly the right thing that should have concluded this game. But also we want it to contain some surprises along the way. We don't want just to see one person be in the winning position for the whole time. We hope to see it hopping around. That's why I've been playing more of those ink shieldy type cards lately, because those types of cards produce that late game rubber banding that we as audiences crave so much from our entertainment, mm -hmm. where something can come out of nowhere, but in a way that still feels more joyful and more connected to the 
plot of the game that was occurring before that spell was cast. That right there is, I think, the real anatomy of the game. The, the reason that we're making this episode, because we want to recognize commander games as stories, as plots, as narratives. The real anatomy of a commander game is that it is an opportunity to craft joy with and for other people. One final useful thing, I think, to do at the end is a post-game conversation. We talked about pre-game conversation. But I think it's also useful to have yeah. a post-game conversation. It doesn't have to be long. It can just be a couple of sentences about, you know, hey, that was a really good game. I think we were all on the same power level. Let's, you know, play that again. Or, hey, maybe I played a deck that was slightly too strong for everybody else. Sorry about that. I didn't realize, you know, we were looking at things from this angle. Uh, I'll play something else this time. It's just, I think, useful to go over that just briefly to make sure everyone's on the same page and got the experience they wanted before you move into the next game. Yeah, that's a, a, a very good uh, piece of advice there. Like, uh, you check in before, might as well check in at the end too. Yeah. And Matt, like you were pointing out, that's a great time to have those moments of just like, oh, that thing was cool. And you just sort of like reminisce because it is very much like, we're all just here hanging out with friends, right? Like, this is all a fun social game. And so like, don't let the game get in the way of the social part of it, both at the beginning and mm -hmm. during and at the end of it. That's yeah. a really great point to bring up. Yeah, I love that, Dana. Yeah, the, the game is still a social format. And so make sure you keep that in mind. Don't, don't, I like what you said there, Joey. Don't, don't put the game in front of the social aspect of everything. Yeah. And that's probably, I think, a good note for us to close things out. I, I'm curious to see whether folks' experiences uh, differ from like what we've been mm -hmm. able to see from here. But like, regardless, I do think that it is a very crucial skill to be able to zoom out a bit, where you're no longer just focusing on what can I make my deck do, and and seeing it on the sort of micro scale. But if you can zoom out and see it on this macro scale and start to observe. Here's how this game seems to go. Here's how, you know, how many times can I expect that archenemy stuff is going to happen and what tends to happen after an archenemy is toppled, for, for instance. Those can help you time out how you want to navigate that game. Because as we mentioned earlier, the three of us navigate the game very differently, tortoise and hare style, and, and Dana waiting waiting his moment to absolutely strike. And those are all interesting takes. I'm, I'm curious to see what listeners think of this one um, and, and see whether anyone else adopts those uh, gnarly things that you're up to, Dana, because um, I feel like I'm starting to, to, to sense what you're up to. And I'm, I'm going to have to switch up my game to mess with your usual tempos, you know? And now I might have to shake up mine just so you can't uh, mess with those tempos. <laughs> there you I'll, go. And I'll still play something bigger than both of you, so that's fine. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. And with that, we're going to call this episode to a close. So, fellas, if our listeners would like to get in touch with us online, where can they find you all? Matt? So you can find me on pretty much any social media platform at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, we do stream over at twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast on Wednesday evenings. So make sure you tune in for all that as well. And Dana. You can find me online at Dana Roach. I'm running articles for EDHREC and Commander's Herald. And you'll be able to find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRECCast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me online, most likely on Instagram, at Joseph M. Schultz. And if you've got a question for us as the cast, you can contact us at EDHRETCast on any of those online spaces, including at EDHRETCast at gmail.com. If you want to send us an email, maybe challenge some stats. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Wreck your deck.